producer Trent here. This episode is the Science Shambles Q&A session from uh, Sunday, always at 3pm on Sunday, except, of course, for Sunday, May 17, because we'll be doing our Sea Shamble show that was meant to be live on May 17 at the Royal Albert Hall. Obviously, that's uh, unable to happen now, so we'll be doing a version of it live online as part of Royal Albert Home, uh, still with Helen Chesky and Robin Ince and Steve Backshall hosting and lots of amazing guests, which we'll be announcing this week. But this episode is with Robin and Helen and guests Adam Rutherford and Lucy Cook and Hugh Warwick and some music from Grace Petrie. Remember to drop a tip in the tip jar at cosmicshambles.com slash stay at home. Uh, we've now sent out around £15,000 to artists and venues uh, just from your tips that uh, viewers and listeners have been putting in the virtual tip jar there. So thank you very much for that. And also if you'd like to uh, contribute to us to Cosmic Shambles and what we do. Patreon.com slash book shambles is where you can go and do that. Here's today's episode. Hello, good afternoon. This is our now regular stay at home festival Sunday science Q&A and today we are joined by Adam Rutherford. Uh, most recently his, uh, well, his most recent book was uh, How to Argue uh, with a Racist, uh, which is an interesting book which has led to him getting a lot of interesting letters uh, with fonts in many, many imaginative colours and also uh, the book of humans and uh, for the person who asked, no, I promise I won't ask about the behaviour of otters. Uh, if you haven't read it yet, uh, you'll know why I'm not asking about the behaviour of otters on a show which may well have children watching as well. There's very, very simple reasons. We're also joined by uh, Lucy Cook, who uh, I think I'm right in saying her first book. I hope I'm right in saying that, The Truth About Animals. I think that that was, uh, uh, which is, again, a wonderful book which takes us into so many different areas uh, about other species that are not always the things that we see when we're watching uh, kind of primetime TV documentaries about animal behaviour. And we're also joined, as usual, by Helen Chersky, who is author of uh, Storm in a Teacup and another book that, like everyone else she's working on at the moment and realizing we might have uh, much much further to our deadline than we used to have uh, i've just quickly mentioned a couple of things uh, one is the tip jar at the bottom we're trying to keep this uh, free access for everyone we're making uh, between normally nine and eleven shows uh, a week we want it to be free access but uh, if possible if you do have some spare cash and you are able to put money in the tip jar that means we can not merely keep me making these but also we're using this as a fund for uh, various people in the arts who are currently finding it very very difficult and also for the art centres, which are quite often a social hub, as well as a place for entertainment. And uh, we've been giving donations to various art centres around the UK to hopefully keep them running for when we are allowed to go back and watch our evenings of uh, free jazz, uh, Burkhoff plays and other such things. I don't know if that really sold it to you by suggesting there'll be more free jazz if you keep supporting <laughs> us. There will be other forms of music as well. Um, and uh, on top of that, I'll just mention next week, we've got a slight change in time on uh, Monday, Thursday and Friday. We're out at uh, 10 30 in the morning and on tuesday and wednesday it's going to be 10 o'clock and our guests are going to include uh bruce hood uh mave higgins and claudio doherty which i'm very excited about their their uh film extraordinary is absolutely fantastic uh we're going to have andy zaltzman and helen zaltzman together as well francesca stavrokopoulou lots of other stuff uh so uh also by the way other things is uh you can subscribe to our youtube channel and you can also subscribe to us via patreon because patreon we are still making other non uh isolation based shows as well so there we go i think that's everything trent told me let's have a look yep that's fine so uh let's now start the show with uh helen chersky her show and tell uh, for those of you who watch regularly we always ask people if they've got so and the nice thing is sometimes i forget to tell them in advance and so it means <laughs> that their show and tell will be whatever is on the nearest shelf to them as they're sat there but helen you know we always do a show and tell so i now this is quite hard to see this a little bit of rock and this is genuine lapis lazuli, which is uh, was one of the most famous bright blue pigments. So back in the Renaissance, the pigment that came from this genuinely bright, bright blue rock, I apologise, it's quite hard to see because it's very dramatic, was more expensive than gold. And people used to measure their worth by, you know, not... 
they weren't in the art that that was painted the more of this blue you had the richer you were so it's super cool and it comes from a, a very limited number of places uh, there's a valley in afghanistan and they used to say the locals that it was like the sky was flowing out in a river where on because this bits of this rock used to come out on the river so that is all very exciting lapis lazuli being a very expensive very rare color and the color itself comes from a combination of sulfur atoms and the brilliant thing is of course the chemists came along and spoiled all the fun by making those sulfur uh, that little compound that pattern of molecules really easy and then ultramarine became cheap and i had just discovered literally an hour ago that i have genuine artificial ultramarine in a little um box i've got some acrylic paint so everybody basically has ultramarine now but it's even so ultramarine is the color that lapis lazuli was turned into and just finally the best thing that goes with it is that after a bit more reading this lunchtime i discovered that ultramarine the what was originally the very most expensive pigment in the world was used in blue rinse so those of you that remember pictures of older women in the 30s onwards who had faintly purple hair that was blue rinse because if you add a bit of blue it stops stuff making quite quite as looking quite as yellow and so the most expensive pigment in the world became in its modern version blue rinse which is just brilliant so that's well, my this is, of course as, as we know why course, many, as we know why many of us when our grandparents parents died we would immediately shave their heads and uh, take that down to the pawnbrokers uh knowing that we had blue gold there um this can i just see that again could you just put that right up to your your camera because that now, is such a beautiful thing a, see, a, i don't know how close I you can get see. I, let me see it the problem is that the way this is set up maybe you can see there the color yeah yeah just put, uh, right in yes place there it's that colour. And I've actually got, I've painted a bit of my blue acrylic. So that might be a bit easier to see. That's my blue acrylic paint that I uh, fished out. So that's the actual colour when it's not hidden in the rock. And the rock itself has, um, yeah, it's got, it's, it's actually, it is, it's got these white, white and yellow stripes in it that are lots of different compounds. So it, it isn't just a single mineral. It's a mixture of lots of things together. But it's, I was so excited. I went to see an artist. Um, the reason I have this isn't because I stole it from Afghanistan. It's because I went to see an artist who restores old paintings. And he genuinely grinds this up to fill in the gaps on old paintings. And I was clearly like a little excited puppy, a little excited puppy about this colour. I hate beige. And grey I will make anything I buy will be the brightest colour available and he saw that I kept looking at it and he gave me a bit so I was very oh. grateful I love that thing that I, I forget what the BBC show's called, uh, which is uh, where, where they find out whether a painting is an authentic work by so. And if you've ever seen it, there was like a William Blake that they were looking at, a possible William Blake, and finding the process of well, this colour is exactly what would have been used at that particular time. This is what would have been ground up. This is the beeswax that would have been used. I know we've also got a question from the uh, from the live chat as well, Trent. What? What? Uh, someone wants to know something extra from uh, from Helen there. So if you can just tell us what that is, pop up on the live chat. Uh, I wish to know, uh, Lazuli uh, is also <laughs> a rather excellent French prog rock band. So there we are. So we've moved from free jazz to prog. So much hope already in the first We're going to have hip hop later because Adam cannot shut up about it. Yeah, so. I know. And he's reached an age <laughs> where it gets increasingly now. embarrassing. Um, Lucy, now, the one thing that... I, your into, into the wonderful programs that you've made about about all manner of species and uh, including the, the particularly voracious seagulls that you, you dealt with. But mm. that journey kind of starts with a fascination with frogs, doesn't it? Actually, yeah, look, look, I've got my favourite sweatshirt on. Somebody just gave this to me. It's got a frog on it. So, yeah, no, I, I do. I really like frogs. It's really true yeah I, I know i yeah i went off i i basically i was trying to i was trying to make a documentary about the amphibian extinction crisis which strangely enough nobody was interested in um and i and um called myself the oh, oh i froze that's gonna happen um but yeah so yeah no i love frogs and uh, it all started with a blog where i was the amphibian avenger trying to tell people why they should love frogs now is your show and tell is your show and tell on your lap or is there a secondary show and tell as well this is, this is kobe this is my this is this is my very much my best friend these days um but i've got and hopefully he won't try and eat it i've got to vultures feather which i picked up in south africa and it belongs to a cape vulture um and i was doing some filming there um cape vultures are uh endangered Partly because of um, the fact that 
local custom is that if you smoke vulture brains, then you can see into the future because vultures have uh, 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 are credited with having amazing eyesight. So there's this idea that you can have clear sight, you can see into the future if you if you smoke vulture brains. And when the lotto arrived in South Africa, suddenly vultures started being um, killed in large numbers for their vulture brains, which... Um, you know, nobody ever sort of really thinks that the lotto could be a conservation issue, but it turns out that it can. Um, anyway, so I was there with this conservationist who's trying to protect the vultures and, and I managed to swipe this feather. But one of the kind of interesting things about vultures is that people don't really like them very much. They think they're unclean, but in actual fact, they're the complete opposite. They don't get sick when they eat things that would kill most of us. And that's because they have um, stomach acids that are very, very strong indeed. And in fact, um, the woman who who's trying to save them, Carrie Volta, told me that if I wanted to, I could clean my dishes or use as a hand sanitizer uh, vulture poop. So there we go. So there I we go. Hand sanitizer is very hard to come by. But if you're near a vulture, or a vulture, then you know, vulture, then you know, their crap will do just their as crap well. will do just as well. <laughs> and that is how the zoo <laughs> break in occurred. So, occurred. so, um, so this is, um, uh, this is Adam. Uh, now you, Adam, uh, now you, have you got a show and tell? Did I warn you? Hopefully, you managed to get my email as well. That is a that was a beautiful feather by the way that really wonderful uh well i didn't actually get the email but in, in the preamble to uh to introducing the this program you said the show and tell could be something off the shelf yourself so i literally have done that my show and tell because i haven't got to do any um skype interviews so far and everyone sort of on twitter is perving over shelfies so i thought i just if you can just see behind my ear there i collect first editions uh, or <laughs> Did you make a noise then? I know you're going to show a Darwin, aren't you? That I'm going to have an awful amount of envy, so even avarice about. These are my these are my my, uh, my 19th century first or rare editions. So there's the Malay Archipelago by Wallace, um, the uh, the Naturalist of the Amazon by Bates. There's an Origin of Species, which is the fifth edition, and then I, and then this is the one that I know that you're going to get really excited about, Robin. That is a first edition of. Vegetable Mold and Earthworms by Darwin. Strangely, his uh, least popular of, of the main body of work of his books. And then there's a there's a first edition of the Everyman version of The Voyage of the Beagle. And then down this end, just to complete the set, we've got some um, first edition of the Double Helix by the uh, and and the, the two biographies by Crick and Watson, What Mad Pursuit by Crick, and the Double Helix by um, James Watson. Uh, who is still alive and still a racist? So <laughs> that's my that's my show and tell is my rare books. There you go. It is such a because I've worked very hard to uh, try and make sure the formation of vegetable mold uh, through the action of worms with observation on the habits becomes more popular. Because I've you know I, I read out for it for about a whole year every night. I would find it, and it is such a beautiful book about curiosity because it's Darwin's final book. It's the last, and it is. You know, him and his son, the curiosity over the actions of earthworms. And I think I think there's a real delight in, in that book. Absolutely. And it's got some of the best uh, stories, some of the best research or the most fun research that went in. The very famous one, which you can still see the artifacts of at Down House, although it's now closed, of course, is that um, Charles Darwin asked his son, William, I think it was, to play his bassoon. He was a talented young bassoon player. And he got his bassoon and got some earthworms and put them on top of the piano and played the bassoon to the earthworms in order to test the idea that they could hear or that they would react to strong vibrations, uh, audio vibrations. And uh, as is not publicized enough in contemporary science, it was a negative result. But that made it into this, uh, this astonishing book. Interestingly, it's not his least cited book. His least cited book is on the emotions of animals and man. And we think, and we've been writing about this recently for the next book, the one that I'm doing with um, Hannah Fry, uh, because we, we think that uh, as, as in, the 19, uh, in the 20th century, researchers and behavioral um, specialists began to sort of try and scientify the study of emotions in animals more than Darwin had done. And so they, they moved, there was a big swing away from accepting even the basic idea that animals could experience joy or unhappiness or, or various emotions. And Darwin had written extensively about that stuff, and we're beginning to move back towards that. 
at the end of the 20th, beginning of the 21st century. I mean, I think it's an interesting example of the sociology of science, how we're not very good at uh, trying to understand uh, the behaviours of creatures because we tend to anthropomorphise them very easily. And you only have to look at Lucy's image to see what a lovely, cute, happy dog there is right there. <laughs> the, uh, that, the, uh, that's interesting because there's a very good volume of the expression of emotion in, in man, animals. And I forget, it's a, a guy who so, uh, actually worked with, uh, I think Sophie Scott worked with him, who's done a lot of the kind of more contemporary research uh, and it is annotated throughout. It's very, very interesting, but I can't remember his name, so it's no help to any of you. Right, let's start off with Gemma's question. Gemma is age seven. We have a lot of questions, by the way, today about volume. So if you could start researching the volume of the Indian Ocean, this will be very, very useful for one of you to get points before the end. Uh, Gemma would like to know... <laughs> Have you got the answer already, Helen? Uh, I don't hold that number in my head. I'm really sorry, but I can look it up while we're talking. Okay, I'll, don't worry. I'll, I'll do it. Oh, and I should also mention, by the way, to everyone, uh, we have other guests today as well. Uh, next week is Hedgehog Awareness Week. We have uh, Hugh Warwick, who's a wonderful, I mean, not merely about hedgehogs, but hedgehogs in particular, one of his his, his, his loves. And uh, we also have Grace Petrie at the end, who will be singing uh, a song uh, based on a letter uh, that Charles Darwin uh, wrote to his wife, which is a, a very, very beautiful song. Gemma H7 would like to know, how do your body and organs know how to stop growing so this is uh an interesting so, so why don't they just keep getting bigger so i'm going to throw that one to you adam Gemma, age seven wants to know you know why what's going on well so there are loads of regulatory now let me start that again with a seven-year-old's answer so the way that our <laughs> genes are controlled by uh the environment and what what's in, inside our bodies inside our cells the genetic code um how those two things interact is a very very carefully orchestrated uh, choreography, a sort, of, a sort of dance between what is being, what you eat, how you develop, what exercise you're doing, and what is inherent to your, your genes themselves. And so certain genes get turned on at certain points. So when you're, you start off your life as a, a single cell, a single fertilized egg, and then a whole program, a sort of network, a cascade of genes kicks in and sets up the whole way that your body will grow from, from that single cell until you're a, a fully grown adult. And what that means is that we need certain genes on at certain times, and they get, they get stimulated by the presence of other, other genes, the structures. So, so you start off as a single cell, you so, soon you're a ball called a blastocyst. That begins to shape into a sort of banana-like st structure. And by that point, we know there's gonna be a head and a tail, and at the head, you're going to have a brain and a skull and a tail. You're going to have feet and other stuff and everything else is in the, more, in, in the middle. And, and that is basically how you set up the body plan. And all organisms do this. Uh, all animals do it in a very similar way. Even plants do it in a va vaguely related way because a lot of the same genes are involved. And then you get born and you continue to grow until you get to a point where you stop growing, which I guess is, is what, uh, um, what the question is about. And the answer is. <laughs> well, I think the answer. <laughs> the answer is well, it's a good question, and I was bluffing for a while there. But I think the answer is to do with the onset of sexual maturity. So when we, when, we hit, when we grow up and become, well, we, we enter adolescence and then we become adults and all of the grown-up bits um, grow, we stop growing at a point where they are all set in place. And those things are regulated by the hormones that we produce, which are both males and females, women and men both produce them, but they are regulated in slightly different ways. And men tend to have much more testosterone than women, which does things like uh, make men uh, more muscular uh, and uh, bulkier on top, but also hairier. And it's also responsible for what's happening to me and you, Robin, at the moment, which is that we're going a bit thin on top. And female hormones such as progesterone, um, enable the growth of things like breasts and the maturation of your ovaries. And all of those things are also involved in regulatory pathways to, to do with overall growth. I'm still bluffing a little bit. To be honest, this oh, is why Adam... Adam, Adam Don't sorry, all men's ears carry on growing? And noses? Yeah, definitely, definitely ears, but yeah, possibly noses as well, but 
involved in the whole testosterone fandango. Or maybe they do. I think that is a, that a, is a, a, myth. a, a, a myth. And oh. I think it's to do with the loss of elasticity in molecules like collagen. So they can t- ears do tend to get bigger, but they're not actually growing. They're just sagging. Um, <laughs> in fact, there was a question on... on See, most- I like the fact that you do that, Adam. I just... <laughs> <laughs> there was a few years ago. There was a question on. Ago, there was a question on on one of the monkey cages about why uh, fingernails and hair continues to grow after we've died. And I do. I remember this because that Brian couldn't answer it, and no one on the panel could. But I happen to know what the answer was, which is that they don't. They don't continue to grow after death. It's just that everything else continues to shrink. And so what happens is because nails and um, hair are not living tissue, uh, they remain the same size. And then when you die, your fingers shrink back and your scalp and the cells at the bottom of your scalp where the hairs are actually held begins to shrink back. So it gives the illusion of your nails growing out and your hair growing uh, when actually it's just the living tissue that's actually just uh, shrinking. Well, Gemma, I hope you enjoyed uh, the answer to not your question, but it was a lovely answer that he came up with for another question. I think he got away with it. Now, of course, in the edit, it would have been perfect. But this is one of the dangers of live. And why, whenever a scientist like Adam says, will you send me the question beforehand? I say, nope, cuts out the fun. Um, now, Lucy, you were you were laughing, but I should warn you, your first question is about the platypus. So get ready. This is from uh, Mike B. Would like to know, please explain a platypus. Is it convergent evolution or just randomness and mutations that got well out of hand? So what do you reckon? Convergent evolution with what? Yeah, okay. No, it's not convergent evolution. No, platypuses are fantastically weird. They're um, one of the monotremes. There's only two types of monotreme. You've got your platypus and then you've got the echidna, which looks a little bit like a hedgehog, but with a long nose. Um, and they, the two of them look completely different and don't look like they belong in a group together. Um, but they do. And they actually have a lot of similarities, one of which is that they lay eggs, um, which is they're the only mammals that lay eggs, which is fantastic. Um, so platypus obviously famously have this big bill. Um, and they use it to, um, cause they hunt at night and in rivers and they're after crustaceans and things like that. And they actually, they've got electro sensors on their bill and they can snuffle around and they can pick up the electricity of, um, uh, crustacean muscles firing. And that's how they, they find them, which is, which is amazing. And the echidna has this long pointy snout that it it's a it's an anteater a termite eater and and that stuffs its snout and similarly that's got electro sensitivity so um they have a lot of weird genetics and oh i read something amazing about their the platypus's sex chromosomes just the other day let me tell you all about it um and adam may well know this anyway but so humans have um xy um uh, uh, system so females are xx and males are xy platypus has five x's and five y's it's like it's got it's got five sets of uh, sex chromosomes and this is one of the kooky links it has with um birds because um the the the, the monotremes branched off um earlier than than other other than placental mammals and there's something about bird genomes which i'm going to ask adam about is he gonna know the answer i know because uh-huh. birds have the zw system um and, and it's the opposite to us in that males are zz and females are zw and it's something to do with it's it's about the load of how much of the Zs or the Ws you have, which make you male or female. Anyway, the platypus basically has the XY system, but it uses the loading thing. <laughs> Adam would have explained this so much better. But anyway, so they're somewhere in between the two and their sex chromosomes tell that story. So no, they're not convergent evolution, and but they are genetically very weird. 
See, this is interesting because this, has... this has shown up because uh, we've not done that many on biology of, of, of the Sunday Q&As. And I think Martin Rees once said something. It, it was about the complexity of, of living things and the complexity of a human being versus the complexity of uh, the universe and how much more complex it is to explain a living thing than it is to explain, in some ways, the universe. Uh, and I think we're really uh, underlining that today. They do, um, have, they do have built into them an example, though, which is that their electrosensors, the mechanism they use is very similar to electrosensing in fish. So when it comes to the actual sensing, like if you want to sense electricity and you're a submerged creature, there's one quite obvious way to do it, which is to have a tube uh, filled with fluid and measure the voltage difference between the ends. And the platypus do the same thing as the fish. So there is at least one uh, electrosensing um, convergent evolution example. That is now, fantastic. A good platypus story as well, which is a story um, as well, which is um, more from the history of science. But it, it agrees with the question as uh, you know what is going on, the weirdness of plat of the platypus. When um, the first the type specimen of the platypus was was sent from Australia to what was going to become the Natural History Museum, the scientists who received it this is in, I think in the year eighteen hundred. The scientists who who received it were absolutely convinced that it was a fake mm. because there was a fashion at the time for sending back um uh, well fake animals um things like uh, fiji mermaids which were being sent back by sa sailors uh, from the far east which would be i mean hideous things not like aerial at all they were hideous things so sort of desiccated monkeys that had been sewn to the tail of uh, of an old fish and in fact uh, the <laughs> circus impresario pt barnum exhibited one, made an absolute ton of money. Um, I can't remember how much she charged. It was something like a penny to go and see the great Fiji mermaid. Uh, and they were a big thing, but scientists recognized that they, they were clearly hoaxes. So when they received the first platypus back sent from, from the, the colonies of Australia to the, what would become the Natural History Museum, because it wasn't named that yet, um, they took it apart, thinking that this was ridiculous, that it had been, you know, because it's got these poisonous horns on the back on its back legs mm -hmm. and it's bill and it lays eggs and it's an absurd creature um so they took it apart and stitched it back together convinced that it was in fact a, a real animal and the holotype the one that is still in the natural history museum the the version of a platypus from which all other platypuses are compared which is what we do in in taxonomy has still has stitch marks on it from where they had to sew it together because it's quite clearly not something that you'd expect to see at all because it's an absurd creature. Uh, I'm, I'm very sad. My uh, my wife's family in North Shields used to have a mermaid. They had exactly that, the desiccated monkey with that. And uh, it was oh. given to a hair salon, but the hair salon closed. No one knows where the mermaid is anymore. So uh, if you've oh. seen a mermaid in the North Shields area, you may well. I might have a claim on that. Um, <laughs> we've got first question for you, Helen. This is uh, we're still on water. This is from Joshua, who would like to know, why does water ruin? Uh, he says, uh, like. Uh, he says, uh, like, why when paper absorbs water, then dries, does the paper not go back to its original shape? What is water effect, uh, what's the effect that causes things to change? So, so it's to do with the chemical structure of what makes up paper, which is cellulose. So cellulose are long chain molecules. Uh, you can think of them as being a bit like spaghetti, I guess, of long chains. And they tend to sit next to each other. And, and there are bonds between them. So what happens when you make paper is that you, you take the cellulose from a tree, effectively, you mush it up. And basically, when you set it, you create, when it dries out, in fact, when, you, when, when water is lost from it, so you do all that while it's wet. And then once the water is lost, each spaghetti strand likes having water around it. But when the water goes away, they'll stick to each other. And so then you've got something that looks like paper. Um, and that's perfectly fine. You've got some paper. And then when you take a paper bag out in the rain, what happens is that water molecules come back and these bonds they've got, these hydrogen bonds that are very strong, sneak back in between the strands of cellulose. Um, and then what there was a bond holding the two cellulose strands together. And now the water sneaked in between and, and each of them, the cellulose strands can go off. Uh, so they're not attached together anymore, and then the paper falls apart. And what you find is that modern paper has additives in it, which uh, make up for that, which sort of act as cross uh, branches that strengthen strengthen it in different ways. But basically, that is the basis of uh, paper shaping and ironing is the same, that you make something wet. And when you make something wet, you add water into spaces. And then whenever you take that water away, it basically the bits where there was water just 
join together and you're left with whatever shape you had when the water was taken away. And so when you iron things, you get it wet. So you add in these extra hydrogen bonds, you dry it out, and then it's basically stuck in that shape until you get it wet again, which is why you can't iron things in humid environments because water comes in from the atmosphere um, and fills in the gaps. So, yeah, so that's why. Someone who's a chemist might make a better job of that explanation. <laughs> I've got another explanation for somebody. I've got another explanation for somebody who lived in a basement flat which flooded with sewage. I can tell you uh, many details, none of which you want to know, and are reasonably uh, unscientific and quite sweary. 1,000 vinyl albums ruined. Anyway, um, this is an interesting, which I think both um, Adam and Lucy might have, have, have a take on this, because this is an interesting thing about experience of other animals. And, of course, we it's, it's a very hard thing to know sometimes in, in internal experience. Do other animals... Animals have taste in the same way that we do since we're all the same species why do we have taste preferences example being why do some people love olives and other people hate them are there cows that don't like a particular type of grass so that is from jonathan so that idea of a kind of an individual sense of taste and indeed animals generally whether we have an idea that they have taste in the same way that we might experience I I'm going to let Adam answer, but I'm just going to say the only Which thing is that apparently penguins can't taste fish. Oh, the, that's a very tragic story. It's just, you know, poor things. Do you know what I mean? But anyway, that's all I really know. Over to Adam. <laughs> well, I suppose it makes them much less picky. I suppose it makes them much less picky. If they, if they can't taste fish, they can just eat any fish. So it's like an all-you-can-eat buffet. Anyway, um, well, yes, the answer is yet yeah, absolutely animals do have taste uh, via their olfactory receptors, which is how we smell, which is a big part of taste. Matthew Cobb's the expert on that, but also via the taste receptors that we have on our, on our tongues, which contrary to many textbooks and humans are not distributed in nice, neat patterns where you have salt, sweet, sour, bitter and umami. They're distributed all over your tongue. Um, but there are hundreds of genes involved in taste and smell. Um, and the two things are inherently related to each other. So there's a good experiment that Matthew does in, to his lectures, which, which you can do at home if you've got some skittles or, you know, just a, a fruity sweet, which is if you close your, your pinch of those, pop one in your mouth, and you won't be able to taste what flavor it is. You can just taste that it's sweet until you open your nose and then breathe in, and all of a sudden you get the influx of the, of the, um, the fruity flavor, the artificial fruity flavor. Anyway, that's, that's us. We have very different tastes. We have a, a range of taste preferences, which are partially determined by our genes, by just different genetic predispositions towards um, uh, particular tastes, uh, and is partially generated by what we introduce to children's, to children's diets uh, from an early age. Um, now, when it comes to different animals, I don't know this for uh, in, in a detailed way, but we, we, there's no reason to suppose that other animals don't have similar variation in their, um, in their taste receptors on their tongues. Uh, we definitely know that uh, animals such as Lucy's dog and mice and cats have many, many more smell receptors than uh, humans. So from memory, I think mice have something like 954 different genes which relate specifically to smell and dogs are something similar. We can actually see the evidence of almost all of those in us as well, but more than half of them have become pseudogenes. So they've basically we don't use them. We haven't used them over evolutionary time and they've become redundant. Um, I'm doing that thing again where I'm basically bluff playing for time now. Um, can I add in something while you're thinking? Yes, please. Um, I am pretty sure that whales can only taste salt. So they've lost all their sweet, sour things. But the salt is very useful in the ocean because salt levels do vary from place to place. So it's possible that they've kept the salt because uh, it lets them know they might be able to navigate using salinity. I don't think anyone's proved that they actually do do that. But if you if you had one of those in the ocean and you, you were going to pick the most useful one of the five, that we have um you know salt sweet sour whatever the other is umami uh, you would pick salt because it does let you navigate so and they think it's because whales didn't use it so they just the mutations accumulated in all the others and there was no selection so they lost them 
Well, that gave you some. T- well, that gave you some time, Adam. But I'm not expecting a conclusion, uh, as we know biology is a long way to go. Long way to go, Lucy. We've had a question for you, which is um, in this in making your television programs, what animal has it been revealed that you oh. no longer? So, have you ever? This is from uh, uh, another from, Lucy. Uh, uh, another Lucy, and she wanted to know: Have you found through investigation there was an animal you were previously no longer keen- are humans? <laughs> um. Gosh, um, ooh, uh, phew, I don't know. No, I don't think so. I can't think of anything. I mean, y- no, I don't think so. I, I mean, they're all, it's always, it's, um, you know, it's fascinating. Even sort of, well, I also, I really like weird, ugly, strange animals. So, and um, I mean, you know, some animals are sort of not what, what you think that they are purported to be um and so you know you one might be disappointed for instance if one's really fond of penguins and thinks that they're adorable lovable creatures um um because of their wibbly wobbly way that they walk to find out that they're basically you know pathologically unpleasant necrophiliacs that might disappoint some people but on the other hand i find that quite thrilling and exciting so um i've yet to find an animal that i don't really like oh Although some of the really bitey, big centipede things I've come across, actually, they're not very nice. Um, and mosquitoes are always pretty unwelcome, now I think about it. But um, particularly the one that gave me dengue fever. But, uh, oh, 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 and I've got another one. No, yes, I ha- yes, the bullet ant. The bullet ant, which is, to this, this guy in at Arizona University, and I would love to get drunk with him, or at least just spend an evening listening to his tales. Who's who's graded the? Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he, frozen, he recognized the fact that there needed to be. The, 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 he recognized that there was no sort of standard. If people went, oh yeah, no, it was very painful, and somebody else went, yeah, it was very painful. It's one person needed to have been stung by them all in order to be able to grade which was the most painful of them all. And so he did this and he's fantastically, he's written this guide and it reads very much like, um, I don't know, <laughs> it's like a sort of florid kind of wine. Um, the descriptions are like, oh, such and such is like a, like a fine paper cut in an acid bath or, you know, so he's sort of really gone to town over the descriptions. But number one is the bullet ant. And um, so-called because it allegedly feels like you've been shot by a bullet. And I was running through the jungle once chasing monkeys and one fell in my bra. Yeah. Because I think Steve Backshall did some kind of on one of his shows, some kind of on one of his shows, because there is a rite of passage, isn't there? A tribal rite of passage where you have to, uh, to, 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 to become a man, uh, you have to go through this process of, of all these bullet ants. And, and I think Steve Backshall, for some reason, did that. And I, I still think he preferred that to doing uh, Strictly, though. Uh, yeah. From what I can gather, I, I still think he found the passadoble more troublesome uh, than the pain of bullet ants. Yes, Adam, you have your hand up. Well, I, well, I, I, I do have one. And I think it's an interesting question in, in that, that what Lucy said is absolutely right. You know, the anim- uh, the, when we think about nature, we anthropomorphize them. We think about how them in human terms. We think about their behaviors without really understanding the thought processes behind them, other than trying to understand it from an evolutionary point of view, which is, you know, am I going to eat you or am I going to reproduce with you uh, or are you trying to eat me? But the... Um, well, followers of my work will know that in, in the writing of my last book, The Book of Humans, where I wrote a lot about some of the more deviant behavior of various animals, there, there were a couple of species that, whose behavior is somewhat uh, unpalatable um, and, uh, and probably not really a Sunday afternoon conversation to have. Uh, but I've already said that I wouldn't talk about the sea otters because, well, you can just look it up. But the other one that I that tipped over from being, wow, that's an interesting and fairly revolting set of behaviors into, dude, you guys are really, really just assholes, uh, which is bottlenose dolphins. So cute, so intelligent, do so many things, have nice smiley faces that make us think uh, that they're a bit uh, human-like. And uh, some of their behavior is is... is well, it's very reminiscent of the worst aspects of human behavior. So a lot of it is to do with how they reproduce, and I won't go into that, but also just straight up infanticide 
So killing babies for reasons that we don't really understand. Lots of, lots of other mammals kill babies uh, in ways that we do understand. So, for example, lions will, um, uh, male lions will kill the babies of a female if they know that they haven't been sired by them. And interestingly, um, uh, leopards have got round this, but the females have sex with multiple males. And so the males then don't know whether the individual babies are theirs or another males. But um, males, two, two males will go around, they'll go to a female and find a, 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 a set of babies that they know aren't their own and will eat them. And then they will attempt to reproduce with that female. Now, that, that's a good evolutionary reason. There's, there's, you know, we understand why they would do that. We don't know why the dolphins do it, but I think it was in the, I, I've got it, the proper reference for it up on that shelf. But in the 90s, there was a report of something like 30-odd um, uh, young bottlenose dolphins that washed up on a beach having been bitten and bashed to death by elder bottlenose dolphins. They're just horrible creatures. I still find when... Uh Ever reading Jane Goodall, Goodall, Jane Goodall lectures when she talks about the first observation of cannibalism amongst chimpanzees is such a, a kind of there was I, I was chatting to a friend of mine who uh, looks after gorillas and she said there was a, a a moment once where one of the baby gorillas had been probably killed by by a male that had been um, introduced and uh, and the first time that they allowed the, the the females to gather so there was this moment where they were all watching you know just thinking that the you know the the baby is going to be discovered and uh, and one female gorilla in particular went over and bent over and they were watching this anthropomorphizing all the time the, the the beauty of of this just this love and then eventually they realized actually just behind uh the baby was also an orange which seemed to be slightly stuck so uh the actual fascination uh, and the morning was not morning as how am i going to get that orange so again it's an interesting <laughs> thing how we anthropomorphize quite a lot this well, is uh one for you Oh, sorry. Understanding that, um, I, I, and you'd have to check with a proper primatologist, someone like Kat Hobiter or Ben Garrod might might know. But it, I, I believe that we've never actually seen a chimpanzee give birth in the wild, despite all of the amazing work of people like um, uh, uh, Diane Fossey and and those primatologists and Jane Goodall. We've they, they, it's a it's an act which is done in intense privacy by females in in little nests covered by um, by leaves. And we think that one of the reasons it is such an act of intense privacy is because we have observed newborn babies being stolen and eaten. And so we've seen that not, not often, but it, but it is a recorded, you know, pub, uh, it's an event which has been published in, in the literature. And again, it's, a, it's an example of infanticide possibly to, um, uh, to prevent another male from siring another uh, an offspring. So as soon as the baby is born, it's whipped away and uh, and they eat it. Nature is lovely. But it's good. I think the great about, thing about yeah. the amount of, of uh, research into all these areas is quite often we still read in books, you know, what is it that makes humans so brutal? Why are humans so awful? And you go, if you spend long enough and you really examine what goes on in so many different animal cultures, if you want to call it that, uh, it, it turns out it, it, it's not all just moving pianos up the stairs before a cup of tea. So um, this is a question for Helen from James. James would like to know, why do we see rainbows as just distinct bands of colour rather than a continuous changing... Oh, this is a good question because it exactly highlights how humans interpret things. So uh, we don't. We do. We we. It is a continuous spectrum of colour. We don't see individual bands. And in fact, there was quite a lot of argument early on in the history of scientists studying colour about how many colours there are. And different cultures split it up into a different number. And the reason we ended up with seven is that Isaac Newton was terribly keen on things having the right number. And so the difference, the distinction between indigo and violet is a sort of made up one because no one will ever claim to have seen indigo in a rainbow but it meant there were the right number of colors which is seven so so there is a continuous spectrum of uh colors just as the wavelength gradually gets longer and longer and in fact off either end of the rainbow there are colors we can't see so it carries on um so we only see a narrow band and uh that the rainbow doesn't contain all the colors we can see because there are combinations of those wavelengths that give us new colors uh, that are not in the rainbow itself. So effectively, that division into separate colours is entirely cultural. That's a decision. We have all learnt to expect to see red and orange and yellow and green. Um, but in reality, different cultures put those 
those boundaries in different places. And one of the things that bothers people most uh, is is the question of whether the red that you see is the same as the red that I see. I think we had this discussion last week. And um, it really bothers people if it's not the same. But actually, we do interpret colours quite differently. So, yeah, it's all interpretation. It's not physics. Um, we just had, by the way, Jasper in the live chat has uh, sent a message about that question about animals and the experience of taste. Uh, Jasper has worked with koalas. Uh, Jasper has worked with koalas, and some definitely appear to have preferences. Nothing more frustrating than going out collecting branches only to have the koala decide, no, nope, I don't like that species. So uh, that's uh, interesting. Um, it's uh, uh, one more question, and then we're going to go over to our, our, uh, Adam. You have your hand, hand up. up. Yes. <laughs> it's like school, isn't it? No, just uh, just my other show and tell, which again was something I just yanked off the wall just be just before the show, is directly relevant to what Helen was just saying. And this is one of my prized possessions, which is, if you can see this, this is uh, the front page of the Times, uh, sorry, page two of the Times newspaper from 1703. It's also upside down. It would help if I did that. Uh, from 1703. And it, it, this, this whole column here is, um, sorry, this whole column here is um, adverts. So there is personal announcements. There's a couple of references to people who have, uh, well, there's, there's, I like this one particularly. Um, Thomas Holland was uh, sent on the 23rd of April uh, by his master, John Stewart, basically an escaped enslaved person. He was asking for him to, to return. But anyway, that's not the point. The point is, that this, and the reason I own this, is because the second one down is the announcement of the publication of Optics, which is the book, but obviously I cannot afford the original of that, but I can afford the advert in the newspaper. And if you can just see, it says, Optics or a treatise on the reflections, refractions and inflections and colours of light by Mr. Isaac Newton, printed for S. Smith and B. Walford, in the Prime Minister of St Paul's Churchyard. Yeah, just about. Yeah, it's lovely. We're mainly seeing reflections of ourselves, which we're all enjoying as well, narcissistically. Um, but the uh, I, I loved it the other day. My, my, my dad turned uh, 90 uh, two weeks ago, so we had to do, uh, over Skype, we did a, a family quiz of uh, 91 questions. And I looked up the day that he was born and the news on the BBC that day, the BBC News began with, there has been no news today. And then there was 15 minutes of piano. That wonderful. Um, the, uh, we, one more question. This is a quick one. Just see if you have looked this up. And then we're, hopefully we'll be able to come back. We've, we've got some stuff about hippopotamus, uh, the hippopotamus. So I hope we're going to be able to go to that after we've had our, our chat about hedgehogs. Uh, but this is from Jeremy's eight-year-old, who's a budding uh, paleontologist. And he wants to know, Helen, the volume of water. So I have, uh, I, I did cheat. I looked it up. And it is... 264 million cubic kilometers and the Indian Ocean is a bit of a it's the one that gets forgotten I think it's always been a bit undersold because everyone thinks about the Atlantic and the Pacific and western explorers tended just to go around the edges of the Indian Ocean and not bother very much about the middle so um, it is 20% of the volume of the entire ocean it's almost all four kilometers deep it's, it's, it's so it's a very deep ocean and it does have um, hundreds of millions of, of cubic kilometers did I say square cubic kilometers of water in it so there's a lot of the Indian Ocean. Right, so there's a, a lot of work for you, uh, for, uh, Jeremy's, uh, for uh, Jeremy's eight-year-old paleontologist. Uh, we'll hopefully come back to you before the end of the show. Thank you very much, everyone, for uh, the time being. And uh, just a reminder, don't forget that we have uh, the tip jar at the bottom so that we can try and make sure this is free access. But if you are still doing okay at the moment, uh, then that money gets used as a, a resource for artists and art centres and also a resource for us to make uh, as many things as possible. So, uh, Lucy, Adam, Helen, we'll see you again shortly now. Please welcome, as I said, I, I promised you hedgehogs. There are hedgehogs. Here is Hugh Warren. Hello, Hello Hugh. Hello, now, you, you, this is, let's just get this straight. It's, it's Hedgehog Awareness Week uh, starting on Monday. I, I, starting I, today. I, no, 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 this is it. This is like the lead event. This is what we've been waiting for the entire year. For this one moment with you yeah, and me, the viewers, Hedgehog Awareness Week is now officially launched. I've been, I'm so annoyed because I've not been aware enough of them. I was going to be so aware from, from so aware from from like now. Why do we need a hedgehog uh, awareness week? Well, when the British Hedgehog Preservation Society was formed back in 1982, there was much less 
attention paid to hedgehogs. So it was like, let's, let's, let's do loads and loads of things for hedgehogs. Now, actually, we manage, we've managed to raise the profile of hedgehogs. We've managed to get the awareness about the population decline of hedgehogs into the press. We can't really go anywhere without hedgehog stories. In fact, only last week, we had an entire string of press pieces, and I was doing radio interviews about amorous hedgehogs having more sex in people's gardens because of the virus. I, I think it's just more the fact that more people were spending time in their gardens out at night looking out there just in a sense of absolute depression and going, oh my God, hedgehogs. Um, so I, I think probably more to do with observational bias than to do with actual uh, um, increased nookie. Um, so the, the, the real reason though is that it's our nation's favorite animal. Everyone loves the hedgehog, yet probably as a bit of a guess, we've lost between 90 and 95% of the hedgehogs in this country since the end of the Second World War. Um, and certainly we know with some robustness that it's down by 30% by in urban areas and uh, uh, down by 50% by in rural areas uh, in, in, uh, in the last 20 years. So we, there are really, really big problems. And so we do this. We spend a week of jollity, frivolity. I'm doing all sorts of, of live streams. I've got a, one of my lectures is up online with the Hedgehog Society. And um, we are having um, yeah, a week dedicated to the hedgehog. Normally, I'm out in primary schools and at uh, the Women's Institute groups. Uh, but no, I'm in my cabin. Now, can I ask that this is uh, two days ago, uh, uh, two days ago, uh, my dad found a, a hedgehog on his, his step and he wondered what is the best thing to do if you do find a hedgehog very close to, to your house, maybe, you know, uh, kind of on, on a concrete step. Is, is there anything, should you move the hedgehog? Should you take it anywhere? And if you are going to move it, I think if you, it's true, isn't it? If you just kind of brush it, it will go into a ball and it, it doesn't hurt, does it? But, but should that be done? Okay, the first thing depends on the time of day. On the whole, you see a hedgehog, the first thing you should do is just generally feel a great sense of joy um, because it is, it is such a delightful thing. Uh, yes, you can stroke a happy hedgehog. In fact, I happen to have a happy hedgehog here. I mean, it's your baby, as it were. Um, those, those wonderful hedgehog fjords. But the um, happy hedgehogs, yes, stroke one of those. Don't interfere with hedgehogs unless you really need to. Now, if a hedgehog's out in the daytime, looking a bit peaky, you'll notice one thing, hedgehogs nocturnal, if they're sunbathing, something's really wrong. If they're looking a bit drunk, something's a bit wrong. Um, so then you can intervene, pick them up, put them in a box. You get in touch with the British Hedgehog Preservation Society, all sorts of social media channels, they've got a phone number, and that will lead you through to all of the different hedgehog carers around the country. They can give you top advice. If the hedgehog's out at night, Yes, just sit and pause. And if you're really lucky, you can get kind of nose to nose with it because the hedgehog is blessed with no fight or flight response. So this, when people ask me, why do I study hedgehogs, um, is, is a really, really simple answer. They don't run away. They don't bite you. And, um, and they're, so therefore much easier to work with. And so you can get nose to nose with this creature. And then you will be nose to nose with an animal which is bigger than 99% of all animals that have ever lived on the planet. It's in the top 1% with the blue whale, Tyrannosaurus rex and us. You know, it's a pretty extraordinary thing to be able to get close to. It's a fantastic, wonderfully evolved, um, terrifying predator, um, if you're a slug. So that's an. I mean, the the, the so that's an. I mean, the, the the lack of a fight or flight response is that basically because it has evolved to have the protection of the spikes that therefore it doesn't need to go anywhere. It just needs to go. No, you can't have me. I, I will be too painful to consume. I mean, is that part of what we can kind of read into into its lack of fight and fight or flight? No, completely. I mean, the only other animal which has a lot of this is, is the common toad, well, the toads, because they have they don't have prickles on the back, but they've got this sort of fantastic pharmacy on their backs, which will spray out horrible chemicals. Um, but no, it's simple as that. The hedgehog has made this, this compromise. OK, so you've got a furry rabbit. They were well insulated. They can cope with the rigors of winter. The hedgehog went with prickles. All it is is modified hair, same stuff, keratin. Um, so when a hedgehog dies, it just looks like the spines grow longer. And um, this is so they're not as well insulated, therefore they have to hibernate. But no, they don't have a fight or flight response because the first thing a hedgehog does when it's bothered is it frowns at you. Um, when you frown, you may get a few wrinkles depending on your um, regime. Uh, but the uh, frown muscle on a hedgehog goes all the way from its uh, nose down to its tail, brings the spines up into a prickly bundle. And then if it's really upset, it rolls into a ball. Now, what is it? Where does your fascination? Where does your fascination? come from because this is I, I know obviously there's a lot of the natural world that you uh are, are interested in but it is that the hedgehog over the last 10 years certainly the time that I, I've, I've known of your work the hedgehog is you know something that you have an extra it seems a little bit extra for in terms of love well okay so yeah love you oh, yes there is the love thing that's a really really lovely part of it but partly it's because 
People love hedgehogs. Okay, every time there's a vote or a poll, the hedgehog wins. And that's a really fantastic thing. It's the most nation's favorite animal in every single respect. Um, favorite organism, favorite nature icon. And this means that I can then have a conversation with people about habitat fragmentation or the way that we produce our food or the ways that our transport network is established or the way developers work. I can do all of these things because people will start listening because it's about hedgehogs. So I've just launched a petition at the moment with change.org, um, been, actually been running for over a year now, and we're nearly at 700,000 signatories. And it's it's change.org uh, slash save our hedgehogs. All we're doing is looking for the very simplest, smallest thing, new developments, let's have holes in the bottom of fences to let hedgehogs get into the gardens. This isn't just going to be helping hedgehogs, it's helping the whole suite of our wildlife, all the stuff which doesn't have the ability to fly, obviously. So yeah, I love hedgehogs because they don't bite, they don't run away, they beautiful animals to look at, uh, but also because they're a gateway species into talking about a whole bunch of other environmental problems. When do you think that the realisation, the, the realisation, because you, you also mentioned toads there, and I remember when when, when I was, uh, that's a very loud toad we've got just from off there, uh, but when I uh, mentioned, uh, when you mentioned toads, where I live, where I grew up in the countryside, there was a toad crossing. There never used to be, but they, they actually started to put up signs which were talking about the time when, when towards the river there would be a, a lot of toads moving and, and for people to be more careful. And that seemed to be, when did we start to get the realisation of sometimes this sense of uh, of destruction with the hedgehogs, toads, etc.? Society was back in 1982 and that was Major Adrian Coles noticing hedgehogs dead in cattle grids. And um, he noticed, he, like, oh, put a brick inside the cattle grid, let the hedgehog climb up. Now you can get ramps inside it. Frog Life was set up, charity. Similarly, they do the, toad, the, the, the toads on roads patrol. And you're absolutely right. Toads are migrating into their, their, their ancestral ponds to reproduce because they tend not to live in the ponds. They live in the, out in the wilds, as it were, or our gardens. Um, and, but you know, our road has appeared. And these annuans, which have been around for millions of years, it just that's like a sudden change in their lives. They're not going to stop using the road to cross. Interestingly, a lot of the signs put up about toads, uh, road signs, are there to alert motorists of skid risks rather than for us to be concerned about the toads. Uh, the Department of Transport has announced that there's going to be hedgehog signs out there now. That is actually to benefit the hedgehogs rather than for any other risk. So we have started to care more about these animals than when we've learned more about them. We begin to really, really care because we've got that, we've, you know, the science is being done. People care less about hedgehogs probably when they thought they were very abundant. But now we know these population declines are really serious. It means that we, you know, the Hedgehog Street campaign that we run with the People's Trust for Endangered Species is absolutely flooded with people going and making holes in their fences. So the transformation has come from knowledge, I think. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Hugh. And uh, can we, uh, again, activities again, activities that people can get involved with you, kind of, uh, what should people be doing this week What, what uh, to make sure they're engaged? Because a lot of people homeschooling, so it would be nice to think of certain projects they might be able to uh, do as well. Well, lots of information on the British Hedgehog Preservation Society website, so go there for top tips. There's quizzes being run every single day with loads of also prizes. Also, a think about your garden, if you're lucky enough to have a garden, just basically... Get rid of the cult of tidiness. Don't do quite so much tidiness around there. Um, so, yeah, make sure there's a hole in your fence so the hedgehogs can get in. Make sure your garden's not too tidy and go to the Hedgehog Society for loads of other top tips. Just quickly, I wanted to go back to a question that, that was presented to Adam about the growth of people, the growth of bodies, the growth of when do we stop? Surely it's all down to the hedgehog gene. Isn't that the thing which is actually controlling it all? I was really thinking this was like the most brilliantly serendipitous link joining us all together. Um, yeah, we, we, we have the echidnas and we have the hedgehog gene as well. So, so is, is the hedgehog gene part of the story? Is that something we can hear? Yeah. Adam? Oh, we're back on. Yes. Yeah, well, do you know what, Hugh? That was masterful. I'm embarrassed that I didn't manage to do that. <laughs> so hedgehog was a gene that I worked on um, for my <laughs> project. And the thing, the the, way, the reason it's called that is because many of the gene names get named after when they when mutations in those genes are discovered mostly in fruit flies. And in fruit flies, we have the liberty of of observing, you know, really quite disturbing, um, you know, peculiar mutations. So hedgehog was discovered because it got hedgehog was discovered because it got spikes all over its thorax. So when this gene was mutated, it got spikes all over its thorax, which meant that they could identify the gene. So the fly biologists call it hedgehog. 
and it's a really important developmental gene. So it, what that means is it's active when uh, during the time when a when an animal is an embryo, and it's it's in pretty much all animal species. There are different versions of the gene, and one of them is slightly different, has a slightly different uh, effect. And the very nice, clever fly biologist decided to call it sonic hedgehog as a result. So sonic hedgehog is one of the actual genes that exists in lots of different animals. Unfortunately, human biologists are real, just really bad at naming things and really boring. We have to introduce a load of like really rigorously kept rules about our gene names. Um, and so sonic hedgehog in humans is called SHH, which... <laughs> Some people know stands for Sonic Hedgehog, but it's never referred to as that. But the fly biologists, they have all the fun. They've got tons of crazy names like uh, like like Sonic, like Wingless. I worked on a a, a, a gene called um, Aristolus because the ends of its feet didn't grow. Uh, but they all get turned into really boring names in in animals and mice. So sorry about that. Stick to flies. Much more exciting. <laughs> Brilliant. Someone uh, wanted, Liz wanted to know, have you seen the footage of fish being caught using Mentos and Coca-Cola? No, I haven't. <laughs> but I'm going to Google it as soon as this is over. It is. Mo you, have you seen it, Helen? Looking at your reaction. I'm not sure we should encourage That's what it. I mean. This is fishing, right? It wrecked Jamaica's coral reefs because people were like, oh, we'll lob a bomb out there, blow everything up. And loads of fish float to the surface. Um, so I'm, I ha Coke and Mentos is a, you know, it, it works. I, I have some Mentos somewhere. I, I, if I'd known, I would have got them out to demonstrate. But it's definitely, I can see it being very bad for fish. Probably not good for the environment. <laughs> well, that's why I thought it looked very disturbing because it seems to be that the, the stuff I've seen is on uh, dried floodplains, as far as I can see. So it's uh, uh, fish now that are in areas of water below, mm. areas of water below there. And it's just pouring the, the Coca-Cola into a hole. Put it, it anyway. Don't do it. I, I that's what I wanted to know. I found It'd be it unpleasant way for the fish to die. I think. I'm. I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm keen on this as a fishing method. It's an unpleasant <laughs> way for humans to die, but many will also die from similar. But that there, that's due to addiction as opposed to uh, forced Coca-Cola, depending on how you view the nature of the advertising industry. Um, thank you all very much. Uh, I will remind you of the person I always do. The person who's got the most recent book, uh, Adam Rutherford's book, How to Argue with the Racist, is uh, a very good and very uh, useful book. And don't forget uh, Lucy's Truth About Animals. She's working on another book, as is Helen, whose current book is uh, um, Storm in a Teacup. And Hugh, you have various. What's your most recent book? Uh, Lionscapes, all about um, habitat fragmentation. Um, oh, I've not read that yet, but I have. Oh, I've not read that yet, but I have given it to my dad. So he, he'll, he'll review it. And then if he passes it on to me, you've passed the test. Um, Thank you all very much. We're now going to go over and see Grace Picture. We're going to be back uh, also uh, our next Sunday, as well as I said, Monday tomorrow. If you've got any questions about um, psychology, uh, the illusion of self, uh, why we hoard, all of those different things, uh, we've got Bruce Hood on tomorrow. And we also have um, Laura Kidd, who used to be She Makes War, but uh, now has a new outfit, which is Pen Friend. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. I'm now going to go over to Grace Hello, Grace Petrie. Hopefully you are there. We're about to be there. I'm I hope I'm here. There we are. Yes, you're, you're, you're in my ears, uh, which is the, uh, the, the, the main thing. Um, hello. Now, hello. you have obviously we, we've done a, 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 a few shows uh, together, a, a few shows many together other shows on this course, touring, touring around and, and had a, a lot of fun. Um, but this was uh, I, I kind of. This was you. You normally used to introduce this song, making me to be a patriarchal oppressor who forced <laughs> you to write songs about scientists and their yes. lives. Yeah. Well, it's been it's been, ever since I've known you. It's been nothing but oppression, Robin. I think you. I think you're well aware of this. I find you a very very oppressive figure in my life. No. Well. So, um, hello everybody um, watching out there at home. Um, I. Robin um, uh, very, very kindly asked me to be a guest on a science night that he was doing all about Charles Darwin. And because uh, I am not, uh, whenever we do these wonderful shows and I get invited to come along because Robin and I are mates and he's very good at uh, giving me gigs and giving me work. Um, but I always feel like the absolute sort of uh, imposter in the green room because I don't know anything about science. I'm not very scientifically minded. And, uh, and Robin said to me a few years ago, do you think you could write a song about Charles Darwin? 
and I foolishly said, yeah, I'm sure I can. And then I did what I did was I did a little bit of um, Wikipedia standard uh, looking through the kind of uh, reading up about Charles Darwin is who he was as an actual person. And I found it all a little bit drier. Found there wasn't really much that I could sort of get a hook on to write a song about. And then um, I started reading more about his family life. And I found uh, on letters of note, I found this wonderful letter that his wife Emma had written to him. And if there's time, Robin, I'm just going to read a little bit yeah, of it, if that's do. all right. Um, so basically it was while Charles Darwin was in the process of sort of um, coming up with the, uh, the origin of species theory and, uh, and, and essentially in doing so he was sort of losing his, his faith, his idea in, in a great creator um, and at the time you know obviously it was very unusual and there's this wonderful letter that Emma Darwin uh, wrote to him and it's quite sort of wordy, the language is quite thick and I was reading through it trying to find the kind of kernel of the human story in it. And, um, and there's just a line in it that says, um, everything that concerns you concerns me and I should be most unhappy if I thought that we did not belong to each other forever. And I think that's really lovely. And, uh, and there's a, there's a, the, the letter is on letters of note and there's just a postscript that Charles Darwin wrote to, to his wife that just said, when I am dead, know that many times I have kissed and cried over this. And I thought, there's the guy. I can write a song about that. So, um, you getting that guitar there? Yeah. Yeah. I'll just quickly mention because uh, this this is uh, the last thing work. She's she's recorded a, a lot of, of excellent albums. If I just put, I did my first Spotify playlist the other day of uh, people that I first saw at a festival and have then been addicted to their music ever since. And uh, I stuck on that Iago, which is one of my first favourite songs of yours because it's such oh, a, very, a very very beautiful song. And I highly recommend go. If, I'm sure many of you know Grace's work anyway, and you will have seen her either on her own or supporting Frank Turner or lots of other stuff. But go and find her work, buy her work, uh, because you know so many artists can't go out and they can't play at the moment, and uh, and you will not be disappointed by uh, her wonderful work um so the final thing for today and also yeah if you if you can the tip jar at the bottom of this follow us on youtube and uh and via patreon and all those things but ladies and gentlemen please welcome to another corner of her house we've seen so many corners of your house uh <laughs> in the in the last few weeks here's another corner um grace petrie <laughs> of unsold history, a journey round the world. So one heart just your Charlie, forever to my girl. The ever-growing beauty of everything I see is I belong to you, love, and you belong to me. And love, and love. When I'm dead and all this, Many times I've kissed and cried over this and cried over this when I'm dead and all this. Many times I've kissed and cried over this and cried over this. Oceans that divide us of distance and of faith. I worry for our one life, you worry that I'm safe. The burden of discovery that nearly took me home and left you who has my heart now to worry for my soul and love and love. When I am dead and know this. And cried over this, and cried over this. When I'm dead and all this, many times I've kissed, and cried over this, and cried over this. My heart has known it's one love, of that being no doubt. One life, this life was enough, you made each second count.
Thanks. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget cosmicshambles.com slash stay at home to catch up on all the previous episodes, find out who's coming up on upcoming episodes and to leave a tip for acts and artists and venues who are hit hardest at the moment. And if you'd like to support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Oh.